Has the downward pressure on prices and commoditization of tests stifled innovation in the lab industry? Can diagnostics providers begin racing to the top and capturing some of the immense value their tests provide? Our guest this week is Hannah Mamutska, CEO of Alva 10. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Hannah Mamutska has had a career spanning over two decades in diagnostics, both in pharma as well as diagnostics companies. She is CEO of Alva 10, a company looking to bring diagnostics to the forefront of precision medicine by restructuring the relationship between diagnostics providers and the payers. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just dive right into it. Is the promise of value-based pricing and diagnostics still alive, or are we just spiraling to the bottom? Are we going to be able to capture value in what should be a golden era for diagnostics? Oh, gosh. That's a really tough question two weeks before J.P. Morgan, <laughs> I have to say. No, it's certainly not over. I think we're really actually just at the beginning. You know, the only way that we're going to be able to have innovation happen in healthcare is we, if we get away from this concept of cost plus pricing for innovative diagnostic tools. We have to have a way of actually assessing how valuable they are to the market so that we can have developers able to develop them, to be able to see the path to the market. and to be able to have investors see what the path to return on investment is. You know, a lot of the time, uh, diagnostic companies don't like to talk about that side of the business. But the fact is, is that in order for diagnostic companies to be successful, they have to be able to generate enough data, they have to be able to prove clinical utility, and they have to be able to demonstrate to their customers, who are usually the payers, that what they have has sufficient data in order to change clinical practice. And all of that takes real money. It takes money to run clinical trials. It takes infrastructure. And investors need to be able to see the path to return on investment in order to invest in those innovative technologies and realize the value in the market. How did we get to this point? There's obviously large opportunity to personalize therapies and create value in diagnostics, but it seems like the possibility of diagnostics providers capturing this value is slipping out of our reach. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the original CPT schedules where diagnostic tools were paid on a cost plus metric, where the actual test was billed based on the number of steps and procedures, if you were doing a certain number of PCR reactions, or if you were doing immunohistochemistry, how many stains you were doing, and diagnostic companies were expected to survive, or labs were expected to survive, on cost plus a few percent, that it would allow them to have some tiny margin that they were supposed to survive in the market with. And, you know, what we've really seen is that has completely stifled the market. Large laboratories are able to develop some tests, but even if you talk to large reference laboratories or if you talk to large IVD manufacturers, lack of transparency and reimbursement is the number one reason that they cite for not developing new tools that they know would have a lot of clinical utility and solve problems in the market. And that's really where the need for value-based pricing for diagnostics comes in. Because we need to be able to show that if there is a demand for changing how patients are managed, for improving how patients are managed, for optimizing spend of dollars in chronically ill patients, that those, those diagnostic tools are going to be paid at a value commensurate to the value they provide in the market and in a way that allows that company to be 
monetarily successful. There's no question there's value there. The CAP cites a statistic that less than 3% of healthcare dollars are spent on diagnostics, but yet 80% of healthcare decisions are made using these diagnostics. If in some way we brought this upon ourselves, not having the wherewithal or the resources to appropriately design the tools and to carry out the appropriate studies, specifically clinical validation and clinical utility studies, knowing that it's very costly. And so from a lab perspective, it's often easier just to develop something and handle the analytical validation, but making that leap, kind of crossing the chasm, as I say, is is that the area that's been difficult to grasp? I think that's definitely been difficult to grasp. And I think that part of it is that, you know, historically laboratories and diagnostic companies were taught to develop their test, launch it onto the market, and then apply for a CPT code. Because that was the only way that you could apply for a CPT code was after you were in the market and being used by, quote, several labs. And so in that process, it taught labs that they needed to get out on the market as fast as possible to be able to apply for the code that would allow them to get paid. But during that application process and in the lag time, labs were expected to float on the market, offering their tests, and mostly not getting paid for it. And so what this taught diagnostic companies was rush to the market with as little data as you can justify, get there as quickly as possible, knowing that you're going to have to do additional work once you're out on the market. And so if you think about it from a payer perspective, what this taught them to see was when diagnostic companies first came to them, they would come with a pretty small amount of clinical evidence, analytical validity, clinical validity, sure, but not a lot of clinical utility because they just wouldn't have had the opportunity to develop that data. And diagnostic companies and labs would go to these payers and say, you know, this is my test. It's really great. Uh, Here's my analytical validity and clinical utility. Please pay me. And the lab and payers would say, wait, hold on. Uh, I don't really know if I agree with that. I haven't seen enough data. This is a really small amount of data. I don't know if I agree with your clinical utility. I'm going to wait. So let's define clinical utility. I'll take a stab. So clinical utility is the proportion of times that the use of your test results in a different management decision for a patient. Sure. And I would add one more factor is that it changes the management of the patient and improves the outcome of the patient. Because that's really, those are really the two metrics that both payers and patients care about. Who cares if you change my management if I don't improve in some metric? So how can we demonstrate clinical utility if the test has yet to launch or is not used widely? I think the bigger question is figuring out what the clinical utility is beforehand as as opposed to defining it after the test is developed. Because, you know, if you take a particular drug or if you take a particular diagnostic and you build it from start to finish and then you go to the payer and you say, don't you agree with this? It doesn't give them the opportunity to say, actually, I don't agree with your clinical utility proposition. I think you should have taken this path and you took this path. And one of the diagnostic companies that we work with is actually working on a diagnostic for patients who have heart failure. So patients who have heart failure and stage three or stage four heart failure have the opportunity to uh, go through a procedure called cardiac resynchronization therapy, which is essentially when a device is implanted in the wall of the heart and sends electrical impulses to synchronize the two chambers of the heart, the four chambers of the heart, the two sides of the heart, to have them beat in synchrony. And this device works in about 70% of heart failure patients. 
it works really well. Um, in patients that it works in, it keeps them out of the hospital. It allows them to live longer. They can go back to work. They can lead much more productive lives. In the 30% of patients that it doesn't work for, these patients do really poorly. Um, they end up in the hospital a lot more. Putting the device in itself is actually a, a really complex and risky procedure. And because of that 30%, the majority of patients in heart failure actually don't get cardiac resynchronization therapy. And so this is an area where one of our diagnostic companies was exploring developing a tool. And so we went to some of our payer partners and we said, you know, what do you think? Should we be developing a tool to figure out who's a good candidate for this or who's not a good candidate for this? Because we had data that looked at both sides. And the feedback that we got from the pairs we talked to was, we want to know who is going to do well on cardiac resynchronization therapy. That is the most important thing for us to figure out. So getting that clinical utility feedback up front has allowed this company to have a way of developing data, being able to calculate powering for their trial, be able to generate the clinical validity that they need to validate the clinical utility of this test. Whereas if the company had just started to develop the test in the vacuum that most diagnostic companies work in, and they had said, well, risk is the most important thing, and maybe we should only focus on that 30% of patients who do well and ruling those patients out, we would have missed this opportunity because they would have ended up developing a test that when they went to the market, the payers and the cardiologists that work with those payers would have said, yeah, this is great, but this actually doesn't have clinical utility for us because we wouldn't use it in this way. And so I think that's really how getting feedback from the market from the clinical utility perspective before a test is fully developed and validated can really help pull technology into the market. That's an interesting point. Now, can you describe the interplay between a health economic analysis and clinical utility? Somehow the, the health economics have to factor in and different payers and physician groups probably have different expectations about how this is going to work and what a well-performing diagnostic is going to look like. Sure, and health economics are obviously incredibly important, especially when you work with commercial payers because they are essentially financial institutions who are charged with making decisions around healthcare. The way we look at economics with this diagnostic and with all the diagnostic companies that we work with is by working specifically with payers in the amount of time in which they expect to have their members captive. So for commercial insurance, this is often a period of, you know, two to two and a half years. Obviously for Medicare, it's quite longer. And for some integrated health systems like Kaiser, it's quite a bit longer as well. But I think using health economics to figure out, you know, how, how much does it cost to currently manage your patients? What happens if you implement a diagnostic strategy in a particular population? Whether it's to put a patient on a drug or not put a patient on a drug, to recommend a procedure or not recommend a procedure, to incentivize a lifestyle change um, that will benefit the patient as well as benefit the payer. I think those all have to be factored in for sure. But you know, the payers that we talk to obviously consider economics up front, but they also realize that they are going to be paying for these patients' care no matter what. Um, they, they have 
a variety of metrics that they can use to determine drugs and determine hospital spend and all of that. But the fact is they, they know they're going to be spending money. They want to be spending money as efficiently as possible because, of course, their business model is to spend less than they can take in. And if they're able to use diagnostic tools to reduce that spend, they're very engaged partners in diagnostic development. There's been some reluctance, I've noticed, to clearly identify who is the customer. Uh, Is it the patient who's ultimately being treated? Is it the physician who's caring for the patient? Or is it, in fact, the payer? So my definition of the customer is whoever is paying for your product. And so I think that's another area where diagnostic companies um, have made some missteps because diagnostic companies often view physicians or patients as their customer. And while they are certainly the target of the utilization of the product, they're not really the customer unless they're the one paying for it, which is which is generally not the case. It's really the payers who are the, the customer of the diagnostic company. But diagnostic companies and payers have had a, a really fractured relationship historically, and they really haven't been able to come to agreement or see eye to eye. I think because of the fact that diagnostic companies historically haven't been engaging payers until their product was done. Instead of seeing payers as their customers in the market, who should be an active partner in the development process. Now, of course, when we talk about payers, we're also talking about the physicians that are in network with them because no one would suggest that a diagnostic company should only work with a payer and not work with physicians. But I think that that's never been a problem for diagnostic companies. Diagnostic companies in general have always been very active in their physician engagement, um, have been very mindful of getting into guidelines, have been very mindful also of patient outreach, but haven't been thinking about payers as active, engaged customers in this way. I think that's a really interesting approach. Now, how did you get interested in this? What in your early career led you to pursue this path? I never thought I'd be talking about reimbursement on a podcast in 2020, to be honest with you. Um, (laughs) That makes two of us. (laughs) You know, my my background, I'm actually a scientist by training. I'm a molecular biologist. I started my career with a few years in pharma. I worked at a company called Millennium Pharmaceuticals, which was acquired by Takeda a number of years ago. I worked on a drug called Velcade, which was an amazing experience. You know, but it was at that time, 20 years ago or so, where diagnostic technology was really becoming something that was understood. You know, we were starting to use it at Millennium. We were starting to look at protein expression as it related to how the drugs in our portfolio worked. And there just seemed to be so much going on that I made the switch pretty early from the pharma side to the diagnostic side. And just this idea that we could that we could be using diagnostic technology to stratify for risks, stratify for response, you know, pull out patients who are likely to have severe adverse events, and really inform better development of drugs. And I think certainly diagnostic technology has informed drug development very significantly over the past 20 or 30 years, but that implementation in the clinical market has really lagged behind. You know, I've spent most of the past 20 years in diagnostics, either in the lab side or on the business side. And, you know, when you're on the lab side, you think that 
you're doing all the hard stuff. You know, you think that the biomarker discovery and the analytical validation and the clinical validation is all of the hard stuff. And then you get onto the business side and you see how difficult it is for diagnostic companies to actually be successful, to gain traction. You see companies that have gotten real venture capital investment really struggle to make it into the clinical market. Um, you know, and I, I've been there. I've worked in diagnostic companies where we've had great VC backers, we've had great physician support, we've had great KOL networks and amazing technology. But we've really struggled with that communication to the payers. And one of the companies I was at, we'd spent many, many millions of dollars of our VC money before we started talking to Medicare, who for this test was going to be our most important payer. And Medicare, this is a number of years ago, Medicare looked at our test and looked at the CPT schedule and told us that we would be getting maybe a couple of hundred bucks for a test that we'd spent tens of millions of dollars developing. And it was at that sort of point that a light bulb went off in my head and I said, how did we never talk to the customer? How did we never say, you know, this test is going to be really valuable for these reasons. We think that it's going to improve patient outcomes, <clears throat> reduce risk, and save costs to you. And how did we not get that buy-in? You know, and I stepped back and did some consulting uh, for a number of large IVD companies in the industry to see if they were viewing the market any differently. And I realized that absolutely no one was talking to the customer. And it just made no sense to me because, I mean, without market engagement and without figuring out what are the needs of your customer and figuring out how you can develop something to fit those needs, I suppose it's not surprising that we're still stuck in this cost plus value-based pricing discussion. Um, but I really think that this is the opportunity to get past that and really see payers as partners and customers where we can change healthcare by pulling in innovative diagnostic technology. That sounds like a real light bulb moment. So I guess what's simple is not always obvious. <laughs> Some of the early successes we've seen in diagnostics in terms of personalizing therapies have been in the area of withholding therapy, sparing the patient treatments and toxicities uh, where they're not likely to get any benefit. But as we move forward, do you see potential in choosing between treatment A and treatment B? Do we see any other avenues to creating value in diagnostics aside from just simply withholding therapy? And then secondly, we've seen a lot of activity in the cancer space. So what about in other disease states? Sure, absolutely. The, um, the example I gave before in heart failure for the use of the cardiac resynchronization tool actually shows that even though the upfront cost of using the diagnostic and putting in the device is more expensive, it actually saves costs in the long term. Um, so that's one example of where a diagnostic is actually incentivizing the use of an expensive tool right up front because of the outcomes benefit and the cost benefit on the back end. I think there are a lot of other areas where diagnostic tools can also have a similar outsize impact. You know, if you look at outside of oncology, if you look at a disease like multiple sclerosis, where you have 12 drugs that are equivalently approved in relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. A di diagnostic tools there not intending to pull, you know, pull a patient off therapy. All of those patients are going to get treated 
most of them are going to get treated with some biologic therapy. Um, all of those patients are going to get treated. It's not about just pulling a patient off of a drug. It's about getting patients on the right drugs. Because right now the average MS patient has to cycle through four therapies before they get on one that effectively mitigates their symptoms or increases their symptom-free days and allows them to have some normal semblance of life. Those costs of not only paying for a therapy that is ineffective and paying for the side effects from the therapies that are ineffective, but also in a progressive disease like MS, you're also paying for the fact that the patient has a progressive disease that is getting worse as they are cycling through ineffective therapies. You know, particularly if you think about self-insured employers, they really care about this. They really care about being able to get patients on the right drugs on the first try instead of waiting until the third or the fourth try because that allows that patient who's their employee to come back to work and to be productive. So I think that there are so many opportunities that aren't just withholding a drug that are really allowing for making better decisions up front where diagnostics can really lead the way in precision medicine. Hannah, you've been somewhat of an outspoken critic on the relationship between pharma and diagnostics companies in the development of targeted therapies and companion diagnostics. Depending on how you count, we've had roughly 40 indications uh, for targeted therapy with a companion diagnostic in the past 20 years or so. Are things being misrepresented to us? What, what can we do better and, and where do things stand now? So I think we've been off to a good start. You know, I think that I think that the stories around Gleevec and Herceptin are incredible for their ability to shift how we used to treat patients, how we used to treat oncology patients in particular, um, which was, you know, treating them as the, if they were all genetically, genomically, and proteomically the same, to really optimizing their care based on the specifics of their disease. And I think that we're off to a great start. I think the challenge has really come from who should be in charge of developing those diagnostic tools. Because the pharma companies who have largely been responsible for developing companion diagnostics, even though they may not be the ones to actually build them in their laboratories, they design them and pay for them and usually own the intellectual property that goes in into their development and into their commercialization. They are maybe not the best entities to be developing them because it's really a cross-interest. And what I mean there is that it is not in the interest of the pharma company to develop a tool that is going to reduce their market any more than the FDA effectively or any other regulatory agency is going to require. The current state of companion diagnostics is that diagnostic developers are generally paid on a fee-for-service basis to develop a diagnostic tool that is, for the most part, owned by the farm company, which means that the diagnostic company doesn't have the intellectual property ownership and doesn't have the ownership of the market and isn't able to control the market of the product that they develop. And while some diagnostic companies or a lot of diagnostic companies have really been very receptive to this companion diagnostic model, because it does allow them to take in non-dilutive cash, companion diagnostic deals you know, can be for anywhere from $6 million to $30 million, 
to develop a test and that's obviously very attractive and that's attractive for large IVD manufacturers and that's attractive for diagnostic companies on their series A deals because it's non-dilutive cash it doesn't affect the it doesn't affect the cap table but it also doesn't allow them to have any ownership in the market and what i mean by that is that because it's not in the best interest of the pharma company to reduce the market of their drug um, any more than the FDA requires, you, we often don't see the best diagnostics out there. I know you had asked me a question earlier about Keytruda, which is a drug from Merck used in a number, approved now in a number of oncology areas. And I think that's actually a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Because if you look at the biology of how Keytruda works, and you talk to any diagnostician, laboratorian, diagnostic developer, I would challenge you that not one of them would ever say that PD-1 is the marker that they would have developed as a diagnostic for stratification of response for Keytruda. And if you look at actual patient response in the clinic, I think the data backs me up on that. Certainly it's a tool that shows PD-1 expression, which has some correlation with immune activity. But it's really a surrogate marker. It is not a marker for telling you how a patient is going to respond to Keytruda. But Merck's done very well with that. I mean, Merck has really taken over the immunotherapy market. They're definitively the leader in this space. And this success story for Merck has been really significant. There does seem to be that obvious conflict of interest in that, not sinister in any way, but if you have a product such as a, such as a drug, you want to sell as as many units as possible and have it reach the largest audience, whereas a companion diagnostic, by definition, will shrink your um, universe of patients who can possibly receive the drug. Keytruda seems to be an interesting example. We've heard the term blockbusters in pharma. Now, is Keytruda a blockbuster or is it a targeted agent? They have indications, I think, for six tumor types, uh, lung cancer, esophageal cancer, cervical cancer, uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck, to name a few. And it's paired with this IHC marker and the threshold for calling something positive or making a patient eligible, presumably for, for therapy, seems like a rather low bar. So they seem to be reaching a, a very large audience with this drug. They definitely are. Um, I think that everyone would agree that Keytruda is a blockbuster. And I would also argue it's a targeted therapy, but we're just not using the right diagnostic tool to really identify what the target pathway in the patients are. Hannah, before we go, I'd like to know, uh, what are you enthusiastic about? What do you think we have to look forward to in the coming decade? Well, you know, I think that, I think that we've got enough targeted therapies. I think that, I mean, every drug developed in the past 30 years is a rationally designed targeted therapy. But I think that what's really exciting is that we're going to see a lot of patient stratification and diagnostic tools come into new disease areas. You know, cancer has definitively led the way in the concept of precision medicine. And that's true for a whole variety of reasons. Some of it just basic that it's easy to get a piece of tissue from a cancer patient and it's easier to develop a diagnostic test based on tissue than it is out of blood. And so therefore, I think oncology has led the way. But 
the state of technology has evolved incredibly rapidly over the past 10 or 15 years. And we're going to see diagnostic tools in autoimmune disease, in cardiovascular disease, in neurodegenerative disease, which is going to be absolutely key to finding drug targets and, and populations that are going to benefit from Alzheimer's therapies. I think we're also seeing new stakeholders come into the market as customers. You know, when I talk about payers as customers, I'm talking about commercial insurance and Medicare, of course, but I'm also talking about newer self-insured employers that are really getting educated in healthcare. They're seeing it as a large budget line item spend that they want to have a better handle on. And they don't have all of the historical bias that I think some large commercial insurance companies may have always doing things in a certain way. And they're really interested in developing tools and partnering with companies in ways that incentivize, you know, better outcomes for their patients and for their employees and for their members, things that change economics. They're really interested in innovative payment models. How can they find ways to incentivize better care of their members, whether it's through a traditional insurance company or through partnerships with physicians? So I think that there's a ton to be really enthusiastic about in terms of innovation, both on the technology side, as well as on the partnership and payment model innovation. Hannah Mamuska, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. How can folks learn more about you and Alva 10? You can find us uh, online. Our website is alva10dx.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, and uh, we're on Twitter. Our guest has been Hannah Mamuska. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.